Please grab your Bibles now and turn with me to our scripture lesson this morning, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where I'll be reading verses 12 through 16. If you don't, uh, if you don't have a Bible and are in need of one, please grab one of the Red Pew Bibles located in front of you. Once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 12. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. Well, good morning again, everyone. It's good to see you all here today. Uh, I'm filling in because Pastor Eric and his wife are gone in Japan, uh, which I'm sure that we are all grateful as a congregation that they get that opportunity together. Uh, I'm especially grateful uh, because it means I get to come up here and force you all to listen to me uh, for for the next few minutes. And uh, there's a lot to cover today, despite it only being four verses. Uh, and some complicated things to dive into, so hope you've had your coffee, but uh, I'll help ease you into it with a nice little story. Uh, so last weekend, as many of you know, uh, our junior high students, we went to a winter camp uh, up in Lake Geneva, and it was a great time. Uh, I was very grateful for the extra time with them since we've had to cancel youth group, like, I think three out of the last four weeks or something, because this weather, it's been crazy. Uh, and we had several new students join us, which is always great, uh, ones, you know, that I'd never met before. Uh, and so, you know, they're all great kids, and I enjoy getting to know them, and uh, there's one kid that I got to know a lot better than I anticipated. Uh, we got there Friday night and had dinner. We were the first group there, so, you know, we are just kind of hanging out and, um, you know, getting to talk and uh, trying to stay warm in the frigid temperatures that was out there. You know, it was a good night. Uh, Saturday night was a little different. Uh, we all went to bed, you know, normal hour, but I woke up at like 2 a.m., and I opened my eyes, and I glanced down uh, at my feet, and one of the boys, one of the new kids, is just curled up on my legs. And I'm like, uh, I'm immediately thinking, like, all right, you know, these guys are, are, you know, trying to pull some prank on me, you know. And I've, like, caught them in the act. And, uh, but he isn't moving, so I'm, like, really confused. So I poke him and I ask, uh, you know, hey, what are you, what are you doing? And, uh, and he looks up at me, kind of sits up, but he doesn't say anything. So my mind is trying to figure out, like, what on earth is going on here? Uh, and so I start to wonder, wonder if maybe this kid is sleepwalking. Uh, he continues to just sort of stare at me. And so I'm like, hey, do you want to get off me? It's like, <laughs> it's like, hey, do you want to get off me? He's like, do you want to get off of me? And I was like, whoa, all right, well, feisty here. Uh, you know, but like, yeah, he snaps at me. And I'm like, whoa, I was not ready for that at all. 
And so, you know, I just wasn't ready for that sort of hostility at 2 in the morning uh, by this kid who was clearly in my personal space. Uh, <clears throat> but, like, so at this point, like, I'm pretty certain that he's sleepwalking, but, you know, I'm not positive, so I'm, like, still trying to feel that out. But I don't want to try waking him because I don't know what that will do because uh, <laughs> he's he seems agitated at this point. I don't know. Uh, and so, you know, my mind is racing through all the possibilities, okay, and what his reactions to those actions might be. And, uh, you know, for some reason, I kept thinking through, you know, what would happen if he started attacking me? And, like, I don't know why. It was like, but that hostility just put me in a place where, like, I'm anticipating, like, if I do anything, he's going to start, like, hitting me. And, like, what do I do? You know, the, the middle schooler just starts wailing at me. You know, I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know this kid, right? Like, I just met him literally 24 hours ago. Uh, you know, like, if this were KJ, I'd say, you know, I'd just hit him or something back. But, you know, <laughs> half joking, you yeah. uh, But no, like, obviously, I feel bad for this new kid. You know, I don't know him. I obviously, you know, can't do any of that. And, uh, you know, and so I'm starting to think through, okay, so, like, what, what does a youth director do in this position? You know, how do we, how do I, you know, what's, what, how do I glorify Jesus in this moment uh, and still get to go to sleep? That was the other big concern there. Uh, and so, like, I'm thinking all these things. And so, like, literally probably two minutes have passed. This kid hasn't moved. He's just, like, uh, occasionally just kind of putting his hands in his head. And uh, just, like, he's clearly tired but doesn't know what to do. Uh, and I'm just, like, I have no idea what he's thinking. And so that's only adding to my stress of trying to discern, like, what I should be doing. Finally, he breaks the silence. He was the brave one. I have to go poop. And I was, like... All right, my mind jumps and at the, you know, miraculous escape that God has given me. Uh, I'm like, oh, you should just go to the bathroom. And then I paused because I'm thinking, shoot, does he, am I just like a big toilet to him? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the situation is. And he just kind of stares for a few moments and I'm kind of getting tense, you know, as I'm like, oh gosh, what's going to happen next? Uh, finally, he's like, okay. And he hops out of my bed and he goes to the bathroom and, you know, went back to bed, and I was able to go back to bed uh, a couple hours later because I was anxious about what <laughs> what just happened and what might happen still. Uh, so what does that have to do with today's passage? Uh, nothing. I just want you all to know that I don't get paid enough for this. No, no I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I do have to mention, though, also that when I told Diana this story last week, I told her I had planned on using this story for the sermon illustration, and she had said, uh, you know, how are you going to incorporate that into any sermon? And I said, oh, preachers can force anything into a, into a sermon. And, uh, and she said, okay, incorporate this conversation we're having now into your next sermon. So, done and done. So, <clears throat> what can I say? I'm a magician. Uh, anyway, so the point of that story, there actually was a point, uh, and that sometimes we are in awkward situations or difficult situations, and believers, we struggle on how to live faithfully to God in those situations, uh, because we don't want to be, you know, acting not like Christ, we want to try to be glorifying him in all those situations. Uh, you know, so we can constantly be left with that question, you know, what am I supposed to be doing as a Christian right now? Our passage today comes from a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, intended for the church in Corinth. Uh, it won't take you long as you read the letter to figure out that they did not have it all figured out as a body of believers. 
there are all sorts of issues, including lawsuits and uh, one guy that is in a relationship with his mother-in-law, uh, just like crazy stuff going on in this church. And so Paul is attempting to show them what it means to live as a witness in the world to Jesus and his work in their life. Uh, and so our passage today is in the middle of Paul talking the people through marital issues. But first, let's read that passage again. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, her children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So a little context for this passage. I said it was Paul talking through marital issues, uh, but he was addressing specific concerns after talking about sexual immorality and how we as believers should flee from that. Uh, but he doesn't want to be misunderstood because some married couples interpreted his charge to flee that immorality as so we shouldn't be intimate in our marriages at all. And so he wants to clarify, no, that's not what he's saying. In fact, uh, if those desires burn within you, he says it is good uh, to get married and so that you're not tempted to sin. And so he says that spouses should make themselves available physically to their spouses, and that if they do abstain, that it's only for a set amount of time, and yada, yada, yada. Uh, you know, like, sort of like fasting, you know, it shouldn't be a permanent or a, an undefined time. So, uh, <clears throat> so then Paul actually says that he believes it is better for a person uh, to be single, or, <clears throat> yeah, to not be married, because as he'll later explain, uh, that person, you know, the single person is able to focus solely on God. They don't have to have a family to take care of or a spouse to consider uh, as they make decisions in their faith. It's a lot easier to decide to be a missionary in some foreign country if you don't have to ask anyone else. You know, if you don't have to ask the spouse or your kids, hey, is this something that we can do? Uh, it's okay to, to just give a large amount of money if you're single because you don't have to check it with anyone. Uh, and so Paul saw that freedom as actually a big bonus, um, living out the faith. But then Paul addresses couples saying that they should not divorce. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, this gets us to our passage today because it raised some questions for the Corinthians. Uh, and so we'll have to pause before we jump into that again because there's one more thing that Paul says that we have to kind of talk about. Uh, and so some of you may have been uh, curious by the wording uh, in verse 12 there where it says that, uh, you know, uh, not I, or rather, I, not the Lord, uh, is saying this, <clears throat> you know, and then there's that whole uh, a few verses there. So what is Paul saying, okay, if he's saying that this is coming from him, not the Lord? Because that's weird, right? Because if we view the Bible um, as inspired, you know, we're, we're evangelicals, and so that means that we hold to certain theological beliefs, uh, including the belief that all Scripture is divinely inspired. So we won't spend nearly as much time on this as we could, but I think it's an important enough issue to talk about. So real quick, divine inspiration uh, does not necessarily mean that we believe that God said to the various biblical authors, like, okay, write this down word for word. Um, instead, it means that we believe that the authors were guided and motivated by God uh, to write, but while they still retained uh, their own writing style. And we see proof of this in the original languages. Um, I remember taking biblical Greek in seminary, and I think probably most places will start you in the Gospel of John um, as you start learning how to translate. And the reason for that is very simple. 
John was not a scholar. Uh, <clears throat> brilliant in his own way. I mean, I love the Gospel of John especially. Uh, but his use of language was not technically advanced. And so as a starting student, it's very easy to dive into the Gospel of John and, and actually feel good. Like, oh, I'm actually learning some things. Uh, in fact, I've heard it said by a major Greek scholar that John wrote at about an elementary school level for Greek. So, you know, it's just very simple. And if, you're, if you know anything about Greek, you're able to kind of at least get an idea of what John is saying without knowing too much. Now, you compare that to someone like Luke, uh, who is a medical doctor. I remember I was feeling pretty good about where I was in my understanding of Greek, and I was given a passage from the Gospel of Luke. And I got hung up on a word for so long, you know, I finally gave up and looked it up, and I still don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like some internal organ fluid or something, and Luke had like this very specific Greek word for it. Uh, like, I had to look it up in English after I already had the English translation. Like, it was that advanced. Like, uh, so you compare him to uh, John, and it's just very clear. Like, they're just writing on, on a different level, and they're caring about different things. You know, Luke, uh, Luke is especially just very dedicated to details in the passage. So God chose people with their own styles, with their own voice, uh, and for simplicity's sake, told them what to write on, but it's not like he gave them, like, verbatim, this is what you should do. And that's why each book sounds different from, diff you know, the other books in the Bible. So, uh, so anyway, if you have questions on that, Pastor Eric, he lives for that sort of stuff, okay? Bother him with those questions. But generally speaking, like, I hope that that gives you a decent picture. Um, so, so Paul is saying that it's not coming from the Lord, but from himself. But does that, that mean that, it, that it's not divinely inspired, like the rest of Scripture? No. It's still inspired, okay? But what Paul is getting at is that Jesus didn't teach specifically on this subject, okay? Uh, and so Paul is really just trying to sort of readdress where that authority is coming from, that no, this isn't coming from Christ himself, but instead he's drawing upon his authority as an apostle uh, that, uh, that this is the case, that you should not get divorced um, just because you're married to a non-believer. Uh, and so, yeah, so in this scenario, uh, no, Jesus did not say to get divorced, but he did not say also whether or not uh, that still held true when you marry uh, this unbeliever. And so, you know, they had this idea, this other teaching, that you're not supposed to be unequally yoked. So, you know, they're in this weird spot, like, what do we do? So that's what Paul is addressing. And so uh, <clears throat> Paul is not drawing directly from that authority uh, of Christ, but he is drawing from his authority as an apostle. So. With all that said, now we can get into the passage, finally. Uh, I can see some of you getting antsy. Relax, it's four verses, okay? Uh, so Paul says, under his authority as an apostle, that a believer should not get divorced, even if they are married to an unbeliever, so long as the unbeliever is willing to stay with the spouse. So at this time, the church, uh, it's growing rapidly, but it's still super new. And so people were being converted to Christianity at kind of all points of life and uh, you know, from all walks of life. I mean, they didn't know what does it mean to be a Christian in this situation, in this situation. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't uncommon for a convert uh, to be married to someone who hasn't had that same experience. But Paul says that they should stay together assuming the other spouse is willing to. Why? Why does he say that? Well, it doesn't change what Paul had been talking about earlier, where he said that, uh, you know, there's the idea that one flesh becomes, or sorry, two flesh become one flesh, uh, that doesn't change just because you're married to an unbeliever. That is still a, a true thing. Um, and there is another reason, and this is what really caught my eye for today uh, as I thought about what to preach on. 
Paul says that the unbelieving spouse can be made holy from the believing one. In other words, a Christian spouse can rub off on a non-Christian spouse. Paul is famous for his strong theological explanation of the idea that we are saved by faith alone. Uh, And that means that one is only saved by putting their faith in Christ, putting their own trust in Christ, trusting specifically that Christ's righteousness and his goodness is able to cover uh, our own unrighteousness and imperfection. So Paul does not believe and he is not advocating here that one can be saved through the faith of another person. It's like in this situation, an unbelieving spouse doesn't become a Christian just because they're married to a a Christian. Uh, But instead, uh, you know, he's saying something else. And so when we think about what it means to be holy, we tend to think of moral uprightness. Uh, He said, you know, the spouses are made holy. But really it means to be set apart. Uh, And Paul is saying here that by being associated with a believer in your household does not save you, but it does put you in a special place. While not fully a part of the covenant between God and man, um, uh, God and his children, a non-believer would still reap some uh, benefit by being closely associated with one who is, you know, fully a part of that covenant. How so? How could a child or a spouse benefit from being associated with a believer if they're not gaining salvation themselves with God? Uh, and so there is, I think, an idea that exists in our world, and I think it's a very wrong idea uh, and a very dangerous one at that. It is the idea that salvation means escape from hell. And escape from hell is not really salvation. Uh, so to clarify, if I told my wife that either she can watch the Detroit Tigers opening day with me, or she can just have me kill her, uh, I think it's safe to say that she would choose the opening day Uh, even though she doesn't care about baseball. Now, she really hates sports, so maybe I'm off on that. I don't know. It might be tempting for her to think through. I don't know. Uh, But no, I I think it's safe to say. She would just choose, yes, I will just watch that boring baseball game with you. But now, notice, she isn't choosing it because she loves baseball. She's choosing it because she's essentially making the choice between agony uh, versus boredom, and she'll just choose boredom in that situation. Uh, And so if we as Christians are asking people, uh, you know, oh, do you want to go to heaven or go to hell? And they choose heaven, like, have we actually created a convert there? Or have we just given them an option between two not great choices, you know, from their perspective? Uh, You know, when they, there's no gospel in that. You know, there's no good news in that. They just chose the option where they'll be bored instead of in pain. Salvation is eternal and something experienced for eternity. Salvation means that you have put your trust in Christ to pay the price for all your sins. It means that you have died to your old self, and now you are becoming what the scriptures talk about is a new creation. You are becoming more like Christ, and that means that you walk in the light. And walking in the light means that you're living in such a way that your actions are bringing fullness to your life. And to not walk in the light is to live in such a way that your actions are actually draining the fullness of life. You're actually making your life less full and bringing about destruction. Salvation is reconciliation with God, the creator of everything. It's not a checkbox on some ballot with two unappealing options, right? And so, you know, when I first became a Christian, I'll admit that spending eternity with God was, you know, it was like a cool thought. But, like, honestly, it seemed pretty empty, you know, because you kind of sit there and you're like, but I'm just going to be like, in heaven with God? Like, what am I doing the rest of my time? Like, it's eternity. You know, it's a long time. You know, like, let's have some sort of schedule going on. Like, let, are there activities? Like, what's, what's going to make this place a little more lively? Uh, but that was just me as, as, you know, a young Christian. I didn't understand, right? 
Um, but as I walked in the light, as I walked, you know, in my life as a Christian, as I obey God, you know, my life gets fuller, and it still does as I continue to grow in my faith. Uh, and as my life got fuller, my desire to spend eternity with God grew significantly because now I really I have a much better idea of who this God is and how much he loves me and, and what it means to be in his presence. And that is exciting to think about. Like, I'm going to be in eternity with that guy uh, as opposed to this, you know, this puny thought that I had when I first became a Christian. How does this relate? Well, brothers and sisters, okay. You tell me then, okay, what benefit there is to having just one person in your household who believes all of that, okay, uh, even for the non-believers, okay? Like, someone who lives like that, who has that perspective, of course, they're going to make a major impact on the life of the people in that household. To live with someone that understands that following God's commands means living life at its richest. But getting back to what Paul was saying, He's saying, don't leave your unbelieving spouse because they need someone like you testifying to the goodness of God in their lives and to see that life lived out in everyday practical situations. Maybe your spouse decides to leave you uh, after you become a Christian, and Paul says, you know, let them go uh, and be at peace with that, that, that Christ, uh, he offers us peace. But don't leave them, he says. Don't leave them. But Paul makes no guarantees. He says, you know, uh, how do you know that you won't cause them to embrace Christ for themselves? He says, you know, essentially, suffer the hardship, which is a common theme uh, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, but also to embrace the awkward. Because, yeah, it's going to get awkward sometimes. But it's all for the glory of God, that, that by you enduring that awkward situation, that they actually might come to faith through that. Um, you know, it's awkward to be the only one in your family that wants to go to church on Sunday. Uh, maybe some of you are here today because uh, only for that reason, that you are married to someone or are associated with someone who wants to be here. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's one of the benefits of that. All right, Jordan, this is an odd sermon to have, especially for a youth director, right? In a few weeks, uh, you know, we're going to be having a, what we're calling a family discipleship workshop, as I announced in the announcements. But, uh, and the reason for that is really for passages like this. Because it teaches us the huge impact that Christians can have in their homes. And as a youth director here, you know, I hear some of the struggles that parents have. You know, they come to me and they're like, man, like, I just, I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't know how I'm going to help my kids uh, love Jesus. And that's, it weighs on you. And I, you know, and I see that. Um, and I've met your kids, and believe me, they, they need Jesus, all right? They need him. Uh, and so, you know, we can read a passage like this, and, and what we can see, hopefully, is that Paul here is offering encouragement. He's well aware that there were awkward situations going on, but he said that they should endure anyways for the sake of the gospel. And the church flourished, largely due to everyday situations like the ones that Paul was addressing here, uh, we tend to think that Christianity, you know, it spread in these big, you know, explosive uh, conversions, you know, where thousands of people are coming to faith at, you know, at one time. And certainly we see examples of that in Scripture, you know, where two, three thousand people are coming to faith all at the same time. But that's not really why it spread. Uh, as you study history, you see, like, it's, it's because people took their faith into every arena of life that they were in, and they you know, it was on the trade roads. They'd go and they'd talk to the people that they're trading with and say, like, man, have you heard about this Jesus guy? 
uh, you know, in the courts, you know, man, uh, I will forgive this debt that you owe me because I, this Jesus guy, he has changed my life completely. And this is, I just feel like I should do this now. It was stuff like that that got people saying, like, that's attractive. Like, I want that, like what that person has. Um, and so, you know, we see that it came from people bringing a gospel-centered life into every single one of their interactions in life. Um, and so, you know, you may not feel, especially you parents, um, but as, even for those maybe who are married without children or maybe your kids are grown, maybe you're married to somebody who isn't a believer today. Um, and, you know, maybe you feel like you're not really getting through. And, and Paul is trying to encourage them, I think, through this, that, uh, you know, you're making a strong impact in their life just by being a Christian in the household. Uh, and that just one believer, that's all it takes to really make an impact in that. And the other thing is, too, that these people, they didn't have it all figured out. They didn't. They had no clue. Like I said, if you read the first few chapters especially, it's like, man, Paul is walking into just kind of a, a hornet's nest here. There's just so much going on. It's just a giant mess. Uh, there's a lot of potential for pain. Uh, but Paul was writing to clarify some of those things and, and to bring perspective and to challenge them to live faithfully for Christ. Um, you will mess up. I will mess up. Absolutely. And we will mess up in front of our spouse and, and our kids. Uh, but as we seek to live more like Christ, even in our failures, we can point uh, our loved ones to Christ through forgiveness and through repentance and, and through modeling what restoring fellowship with one another looks like and what it means. Um, so as we close today, I hope you feel encouraged. And hopefully for you believers here, you have a renewed sense of purpose uh, and motivation. And let me say, too, that, you know, any kids in here, that uh, maybe you're the only Christian in your household. Um, or, or maybe uh, you're in a non-traditional setup. You know, maybe you're the, the grandpa living in the house. And, um, you know, whatever, whatever your situation is, I mean, it, it applies just as much to you. That if you're a believer in that context where no one else knows Christ, or, you know, you still have that same potential for impact. And so we just need to remember that Christ needs to be at the center of everything that we do. And as we make that uh, happen, we, need, we have a greater sense of what a full life is. And as we have a greater sense of what a full life is and what it looks like, others will notice us uh, for living that fuller life and want in. So even in the awkward, even when you have some random kid curled up on your legs, you know, uh, the middle of the night, uh, God, God is there and he is working with us and he has not abandoned us. But uh, instead, we have that huge potential uh, for impact. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing upon our households. Give us the spiritual strength to endure temptations, to cast you aside, to abandon you for momentary relief or pleasure. We pray that for all those who have not yet experienced what fullness in life truly means. Uh, and, and we ask that you guide us as your people to lead them to you. Forgive us for when we fail. And we trust that your son Christ is able to overcome our failures and bring the lost into the kingdom in spite of those failures. Go with us this week. Remind us of the calling you've placed on us in our household. Amen.